Okay, let's uh, begin, and I think if you have your survey yet to complete, uh, just at the end of our session, you can give it to, who's, who's collecting those? Uh, to Joe, all right? If you still have your survey with you, uh, give it to Joe, and I, I presume there'll be some further instructions on cleaning out after we uh, are finished here. All right, uh, once again, to uh, uh, summarize where we've been, uh, we started with uh, the fundamentals of salvation when we looked at in Christ and sanctification or conformation uh, when we look at, uh, I'm sorry, with Christ is devotion, then uh, uh, like Christ is uh, sanctification, and now we're at for Christ, which is uh, a way to express motivation. And the point here is that, that our lives uh, need to be focused on Christ, Christ-centered lives. Um, that that why we do what we do uh, is just as important as what we do in some senses. Um, and I want to look at this expression for Christ in one particular passage in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, then in a number of different passages because uh, there are some specifics regarding why we do what we do uh, in terms of mission, in terms of obedience, in terms of suffering, and then finally, I want to focus on one main area, and that is work uh, that I feel we have not done enough reflecting on in terms of motivation in that particular area. So that's the plan. Second uh, Corinthians 5, if you turn to that passage, uh, is, a, a, again, a very important passage uh, where this expression, for Christ, is used uh, with some very, I think, in, uh, enlightening uh, aspects of it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Um, let me begin reading, uh, where, um, Ron, let me begin reading with you, and then we'll go up across the back row on the right, okay? We won't have that many passages, but 2 Corinthians 5.14, if you'd read that and, and the following verse 15 for us. Okay, is that King James or? Okay. Uh, so uh, let's look at a few of the expressions here that are used. Uh, for the love of Christ is the first one. Now, this one could be understood in two different ways. Uh, the love of Christ uh, could be, in English, uh, our love for Christ. The love of Christ. Or it could be Christ's love for us. It could be either one. And both of them make sense, and both of them actually, uh, we will see, are used uh, for ideas around motivation uh, in other passages. That is, that our love for Christ uh, motivates us, as well as Christ's love for us motivates us. Now, look at this particular passage, and which one do you think is probably dominant uh, both are possible, but which one do you think is, uh, is dominant in terms of its likelihood of being the way that Paul is uh, uh, using the expression here? Yeah, Christ's love for us. And what leads you to that conclusion? 
Exactly. Uh, he goes on in that passage, beginning in verse 15, and says, he died for all, which is an expression of Christ's love for us. So I think in this passage, uh, the emphasis is Christ's love for us motivates us. Uh, the word in King James is, King James is constraineth. Uh, Christ's love constraineth us. Um, what other translations do you have for that word? Controls, compels. Any other? Okay. Uh, the, the word would be used of, uh, of hemming in or even besieging. It, it's often used almost in a, a hostile way, uh, as though Christ's love corners us. Uh, it's like we don't have any other choice uh, because of Christ's love. Not that Christ's love itself is hostile, but in the sense that uh, that it forces us, it compels us, uh, it controls us. It's used of, of armies besieging Jerusalem. It's used of a fever that would control somebody, take possession of somebody. It's used of, uh, in the arrest of Jesus, uh, how he is controlled, he's com- he is hemmed in, uh, uh, and, and the guards guard him. Uh, so it's a, a very powerful uh, word. Uh, to hold, it's defined as to hold within bounds so as to manage or guide, to direct, control. It's almost like we have no other choice. Uh, Christ's love is so compelling, is so constraining that we have really have no other choice. Uh, he goes on and expresses uh, three convictions here in this passage. The first one, he says, if the love of Christ controls us because... One, we are convinced that one has died for all. Uh, in the crucifixion, uh, Christ died for us. Therefore, all died. That's the second conviction, and one that we've already looked at, uh, the idea that we have died uh, in a sense already because we have been united with Christ. And he died for all that those might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Uh, and that's the third conviction, uh, and that is that Christ has been raised, and when Christ is raised, we also are raised to a new life. Now, how do we live that new life? And that's what Paul is answering here. He says we live that life no longer for ourselves, but for Christ. We don't live the life for ourselves, but we live it for Christ. He is our motivation. Uh, he is the one that, that our life is focused upon, is centered upon. Uh, he is the reason that we live the way we do. is because we don't live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. I think in, in uh, older evangelical terminology, we would use the word surrender. Uh, I surrender all, uh, that kind of idea. Uh, it's, it's the idea that our, our goals, our values... Uh, what we're passionate about, what's important to us, uh, our actions, everything is controlled by the love of Christ uh, for us. We surrender all. Um, I think in, in, ex- in terms of experience, I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians have come to uh, a deeper understanding of that as they go along in their Christian lives uh, of how that's done or to make that decision to do that. In my own experience, uh, I came to know Christ for the first time uh, when I was 10 at a church camp. 
and acknowledged him as my savior, acknowledged my sin, but for a number of years didn't really live that out in terms of my Christian experience. And it wasn't until another church camp three or four years later where uh, I remember sitting by a rock on a lake and, and acknowledging, you know, God, you, you're the one who created me, and you're the one who gave your life for me. Uh, you redeemed me, and you have a purpose in my life, a purpose for my life, and there's no one who knows that better than you do, and you love me. You know, I want to give everything that I have to you. I want to live for you. And there was a, just a moment in my life where I came to that realization and made that decision uh, that I wanted to do that. I wanted to live for Christ. Uh, I, I don't think everybody has that, that kind of, of dramatic moment or, or central turning point in their lives. Maybe it's a more gradual thing. Let me tell you this, that even though I made that decision when I was 14 or so, uh, there's still a daily commitment uh, there's still a daily choice that we make to live our lives for Christ uh, and not for ourselves, that the choices we make, the priorities we have, the values we have uh, are based on Christ's love for us. We're no longer living for ourselves. We're now living for him. There are other uh, factors that we could talk about when we think about living for Christ. Uh, obedience is one. Uh, look, look at the passages in John here. Uh, John 14, and we read three verses here. Uh, thank you. Uh, let me uh, read a verse where we've uh, 15, John 14, 15, and then Joe, read 21, and Ken, read 23, please. Yeah, and here we see in all these three passages, it's the other side. The flip side is that it's our love for Christ uh, that uh, motivates us. Now, of course, we see behind that is his, his love for us. Uh, we love, love because he first loved us. Uh, but here the expression is, uh, is obedience because of our love for Christ. That's what motivates us in terms of, uh, as he said, keeping my commands. Another passage, if we go back to 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, and we see this aspect of mission as being um, motivated uh, by uh, Christ, by our love for Christ, by what Christ has done for us. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 20 and following, a familiar passage. Uh, so we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And, you know, we could talk about what ambassadors means there, but obviously we're representing Christ and we're giving his message. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Uh, for our sake, he made him who, do, who to be sin, who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The expression for Christ there uh, 
It comes up both in verse uh, 20, for we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, And then it also comes up when it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's the same expression, the same preposition is used uh, for us. So he's looking at God's action on our behalf and then our response uh, for that. Uh, We appeal for Christ. we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, so there is a, 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 a reciprocation in a sense. God has, has acted on our behalf and we respond. Uh, we're motivated uh, by that in terms of our, um, our message for Christ, our mission for Christ. In 3 John 7, uh, the missionaries there are described as ones who go out for the sake of the name. And that, to me, uh, seems to almost be definitional. It seems to almost define what it means to, uh, to be a missionary, to go out uh, for the sake of the name in uh, Third John. And finally, suffering is another aspect of, uh, of our existence, of our lives, where we are motivated uh, for Christ. And that was true in the lives of the apostles, and you see that in Acts And we'll look at just a few passages there. Uh, Let's look at the first two, Acts 5 and then Acts 9.16. Acts 5, verses 40 and 41. Yeah, for the name. Uh, And that's the expression that's used over and over again in uh, Acts in particular, is to suffer for the name. And the name, of course, is, you don't even need to know what, uh, or he doesn't even need to say for the name of Christ, because there really is only one name, uh, and that is Christ's name. Uh, So to suffer for the name is the expression that's used. Uh, Acts 9 is, of course, uh, Paul. And uh, verse 16, and uh, I was Yeah, and this is Christ, of course, uh, talking to Ananias about Paul, and uh, um, it is suffering for the name, and uh, and that's the the focal point of uh, Paul's suffering. He not only suffers like Christ suffers, but he also. Uh, his his work is motivated uh, by Christ. What I want to spend uh, the majority of our time is uh, on this particular passage in Colossians chapter 3. This is a remarkable passage when we consider the idea of, of work and in particular uh, work for Christ. Uh, let's look at it a little bit more carefully. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, you remember the context here? This is uh, the context of what we call the, the household tables. Uh, you see the same thing in, in uh, Ephesians, where first Paul addresses the wives and then the husbands, and then the children and then the fathers, and then finally the slaves and the, uh, the masters. Uh, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, is the masters. The longest section here is uh, directed toward the slaves. 
Um, and there would be uh, Christian slaves. The, uh, there were many slaves in uh, the Roman Empire at this time. Probably close to one-third of all people in the Roman Empire were under slavery. Uh, and a number of them uh, came to know the Lord. We know, of course, of Philemon uh, being one uh, who came to know Christ. And Paul directs uh, these words then to the slaves, Christian slaves, in beginning in verse 22. Let me read. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now let me stop right there. Masters, the word masters, is the same word that is translated Lord, referring to Christ, uh, later on. So there's a bit of a play on words here that Paul's using. And he's saying, uh, now you, you think you have masters, you think you have earthly masters, and you do, but you also have another master, and that is Christ. Christ is your master. He's your real master. The other one, that he's your earthly master, but you also have another Lord. Let me start over. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, uh, masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. All right, there's the beginning of the motivation there, reverence for the Lord, fearing the Lord, acknowledging that you, when you are working, you are working in his presence, You're working in the presence of your real Lord. Whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men, because you really are serving the Lord. So work heartily. You know, don't don't sweep things under the rug. Don't just work when uh, when your master's around. Uh, Don't be sloppy. Work hard and work diligently because your real master is in heaven. Knowing that from the Lord, that is there obviously uh, Christ, uh, not your earthly master, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, which is already incredible to the slave because a slave in the Roman Empire could own nothing. He had no inheritance. He had no possessions. He had no hope of inheritance. And here... Uh, Paul is saying to the slave, you will have a reward, and it is from me that you will receive that. You will receive an inheritance. And then the, the remarkable statement at the end of verse 24, uh, when Paul says very openly, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. So here Paul is saying that these slaves... Take Philemon as an example. Uh, These slaves are actually serving the Lord in whatever they do. They're serving the Lord. Chapter 3, verse, I think, uh, 13 uh, or 23. Chapter 3, verse 23 is not the one I'm looking for. Chapter 3, verse... um, Uh, whatever you do in word and deed, uh, that's the one I'm looking for. Uh, 317? 317, thank you. Uh, whatever you do in word or deed, uh, do everything in the name of the Lord, 
Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father uh, through him. So whatever you're doing, uh, you should be serving the Lord. So it's remarkable, isn't it, that, that here uh, slaves, whether they are out plowing the fields or whether they are cleaning the dishes uh, or whether they're doing the household accounts or whether they're going out to buy something or whether they're herders, whatever they're doing, Paul says, you are serving the Lord. That, to me, is a remarkable statement. Uh, it's remarkable because we so little think of our jobs, uh, our occupations, our vocations, our professions, uh, what we do eight hours uh, from eight to five on weekdays as serving the Lord. We might think, well, we could, we could serve the Lord if we do it this particular way. Um, but, but just as a, an open statement, you are serving the Lord uh, in terms of what the slaves are doing. Let me uh, bring this up to a, a discussion here and, uh, and ask for your participation in this. I just wondered how how Christ-centered you would look at work. Uh, it seems to me, as I said, that, that a lot of evangelicals have not thought through a theology of work. Uh, there's not much written on it, uh, actually. But uh, this would be a good starting place, is uh, Colossians 3, and looking at uh, the slave. And uh, this expression in particular, you are serving the Lord. Is work, for instance, a necessary evil? I think that's the way a lot of Christians uh, look at work, uh, that uh, the real goal of work is either to gain leisure time or to gain enough money so that they can give to the Lord's work or that they can witness uh, with their mouths, testimony, uh, during work or an occasion for that. Um, and that's, that's what gives work value that if you're not able to do those things, then it's a job, but it's not serving the Lord. Does that ring a bell? Does that, is there a resonance there, do you think? Okay, widespread resonance or just uh, something? Keith? No. Uh, no, that's an excellent question. It's an excellent question, and that, that's, a, that's another great place to start. If you go back to Genesis, uh, you learn two things. Uh, one is that when God created uh, Adam, he put him in charge. Uh, he, he said, you subdue the earth. This is before the fall. Subdue the earth. So there was a task already, a work task. Secondly, um, the Sabbath, it says, and God rested from the work he had done. So God works. So we know it's not inherently evil. God works. And he continues to work. John says, uh, in, in uh, John, Jesus says, my father works and continues to work. He's the one who sustains the earth uh, through his work. So we know that, that work is not evil. The passage you would be referring to is the one that says, by the sweat of your brow, uh, you will toil the soil and so forth, right, which uh, talks about the encumbrances on work, 
that we have uh, due to the fall. But work itself is not inherently evil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the weeds. Yeah. 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 Yes. Am I hinting at a work ethic? I'm, I'm actually uh, hinting at a bit more than that. Uh, that's, that's part of it, but there's actually more. Yeah, sure. Works ethic, right? Yeah. Uh, good. Yeah. Let me go on to the second question, or, or the second part of that uh, first question. Work is neither a curse nor an idol. I think, again, this is uh, two extremes that Christians fall into, or other people, that it's either a curse, it is a necessary evil, or it becomes an idol. That some people idolize work and, and, and become uh, workaholics and make that the focus of their lives. Uh, but for the Christian, a way of fulfilling God's grand purposes uh, and we'll come back to that. Uh, wh- what do we mean, uh, fulfilling God's purposes? It is part of this hint of, of ruling the earth, subduing the earth, uh, and uh, his original vocation. The word vocation, of course, comes from the word calling in Latin, so it's, it's our calling, our vocation. Is it possible that in every vocation a Christian can serve the Lord uh, just as a slave? And that's almost a rhetorical question. Because the answer is yes. Uh, now, uh, we would say if we go back to to Luther and the reformers, and this is where actually they did a lot of thinking about uh, vocation and work. Uh, Luther in particular, but Calvin as well, uh, and and gave some real thought to this. Um, and Luther says every honorable vocation. Um, he makes a little distinction here, which is fair enough. Uh, but uh, but the idea that uh, that in every vocation, uh, just as the slave uh, does, they can also serve the Lord. You can serve the Lord. Uh, in fact, you are serving the Lord uh, as you work. It was um, what Luther said was uh, that that God he he used the, the illustration of the milkmaid. And he said that God is the one who is milking the cow and providing the milk through the milkmaid. And he called that uh, idea the mask of God. That is that when you look at this milkmaid, you don't see God milking the cow. But what God is doing is he is graciously providing provision, food, uh, through the baker, through the the milkmaid, uh, through the farmer. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's not manna that comes down, it's what comes off the delivery truck 
uh, that comes. And God is, in those ways, through, through human effort, through work, uh, he is providing for his creation. Uh, he is providing for us. He is answering that prayer. Uh, and, and that, in itself, uh, is God at work. Uh, God's working through us in our vocations. I think it goes into computers and all those things, too, not just farmers and stuff, but I'm not quite sure. Um, and, and that does, in fact, give dignity uh, to the slave uh, who is actually serving the Lord in his vocation. And even more than dignity, you could even see a sense of sacredness. Uh, sacredness because it's devoted to God. Uh, this is God's work. Now, how about the non-Christian? Is the non-Christian also serving God uh, in their work? What do you think? Yeah? Exactly. I think that's right. I think that's the difference between a Christian and non-Christian is that the uh, Christian is aware that they are serving the Lord uh, through their work. They see the hand of God. Uh, they see God's grander purposes being fulfilled, whereas the non-Christian is unaware of that. But they also can be serving the Lord. Uh, the, certainly the magistrate does, the, whether the, the uh, governor, whether they know it or not, they are God's instruments, aren't they? Uh, and so also are people who are working, are God's instruments. Uh, Ray, you had a comment. Well, I just think that uh -huh. we also have that word for, for the wicked. I'm sorry. Uh, somebody else talking about No, go ahead. Never mind. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, how does he serve the Lord then? What, what is it? Uh, how is it that Paul can go to the slave and say, you are serving the Lord Christ? Is it only, only when he witnesses? No, as I said, I think it's broader than that. I think that we should understand that, that God's purposes are being fulfilled uh, through our work, uh, through honorable work, uh, that is providing for society, uh, that's providing food, that's, that's providing electricity, uh, that, that God in his mercy is giving us these things, uh, and that we are instruments in his hand as that work is being fulfilled. Uh-huh, Louis? Yeah. Uh, not quite. Uh, I think what I would say is sort of what, what Al was getting at, and that is that, that even a non-Christian, we could say, is serving the Lord in his work in the sense that he's fulfilling the, the God's purposes uh, in providing for food, electricity, whatever, uh, but is unaware of his role in God's purposes, whereas Christians need to be aware of God's role uh, and that's where what you're saying comes in, and that's the next step. It's not only being aware of God's purposes, but uh, being motivated by that, uh, that we, in fact, will be motivated as we work and say we are serving the Lord. Uh, and that's what, what I think uh, Paul is getting at here when he's instructing the slaves. 
He's saying, you are serving the Lord. Therefore, this is how you ought to work. Yeah, so I think motivation does come in. I don't think it, it is fundamental in whether we are actually serving the Lord or not, whether we are aware of it or whether we're motivated by it. We are, but, uh, but I think that it, our awareness of it helps us, and, and we ought to be motivated by it. There's no fancy Greek words here. Yeah, but, but well, the, the idea, though, that Jesus said, you know, you can't serve two masters. Mm-hmm. You can't serve God and the money. And so mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, their job is, you know, mammon. It's mm-hmm. the money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. It's not serving God. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought about how that verse fits in. Uh, Al, do you have a comment on that particular verse? Yeah, Keith. Well, I was Come gonna on. say maybe it's just the way we use the word service. Yes. We're implying the attitude of the person serving. So I don't know. Maybe when you, I was just, I think what you meant when you said even the unbeliever serving God. Maybe I was thinking of it as well, the unbeliever is really being used by God for His purposes, but they don't have that service. Yes. Yes. Now, I guess when we say serve, that's what we usually mean. Our attitude is we want to be used by God. Yeah. Well, the reason I brought in the case uh-huh. with the Gerardson work, there's more on like the document, which is like right. where we get taken. But there's also a tree of where it, it apparently tells us sometimes you can't tell your work. Right. And, and so it, there's a place of, you know, which is your spiritual act of serving. Right. There, that's like worship. Yeah, and it's, but it's not that word. Well, right. But anyway, it's, it's Yeah. Uh, Robert? Is that sort of what Keith is saying, that there's a different attitude yeah. uh, there? Yes. 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 No, but I, I think that's helpful. I think that that's helpful, particularly in, in Lewis's uh, question about serving God or mammon. Uh, it's it's the, the attitude of uh, devotion and loyalty and uh, motivation is what your word was. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, that uh, perhaps we need to, to think 
more broadly in terms of service in our work beyond simply are we able to gain wages are we able that we can use for God, which is certainly justifiable, but that's not the only way we serve, or to gain leisure time so that we can actually do the Lord's work uh, as though you're not doing the Lord's work, uh, eight to five. Uh, I think it, we need to think broader in terms of how our work actually is fulfilling God's purposes and how we can be motivated by that uh, to serve the Lord, eight to five. Yeah. And that, of course, would go back to uh, verse uh, 22 when he says, not with eye service or as men pleasers. Uh, that is that if our focus is on Christ and serving Christ, uh, then that sort of excludes, will tend to exclude some of those other things. Right, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that, uh, that too often we get this dichotomy between those who are, quote, ministers uh, for God, uh, and those are the ones who are serving the Lord, and then everybody else, they just serve the Lord when they have time or when they have money, uh, rather than seeing those people also, uh, the eight to five people, is also serving the Lord. Uh, that's what this passage is saying. You serve the Lord Christ. So, so the, the expression, thank God it's Friday, can become thank God it's Monday uh, because here is an opportunity to serve the Lord in my 8 to 5.
and multiply. Yeah. Uh, Taylor? Taylor? That's the same idea, Lenny. Uh, Taylor? Are not are not things that are necessary, right? You have so many people in the basically in the entertainment industry. I provide this service so that you can have your cable, so that you can have something that might actually instead of being a service that you need to survive, we're providing you services that actually detract from the time that you can buy your own cable service. Okay, you want to respond to that, Bob? Right. Uh, and, and therefore, my worth becomes questionable. Right. Uh, but if my goal is to bless, then I'm manifesting the common grace of God with, uh, to people. Yes. Please. Yeah. And that's what Luther talked about when he talked about honorable professions. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what he had in mind, uh, whether it was prostitution or something obviously much worse. Uh, or likewise, and obviously that's not going to be a blessing. It's not going to be a part of God's common grace. Uh, so I think that what you're seeing, Taylor, is some blurring there and maybe some decisions that Christians would, would need to make in terms of their own decisions as to how best to use their talents and their, uh, their gifts and their experience in blessing others through their vocations. Uh, and, and maybe uh, it may not be best to work for this particular company. There may be other uh, choices or other, other factors that would say, no, I should, shouldn't work for them, I should work for somebody else. Yeah. Yes. Or another one would say, you are an asset to this institution. And when that person left the institution, the administration would say, we're going to miss you. Right. So although that person was probably making less money than many others who had seniority or whatever, he was making an impact that mm-hmm. others were not making. And on one occasion, that teacher was sent to substitute another teacher, and he did what he did for the Lord. There was a complaint from the official teacher to the student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is a, this implication here when when Paul says don't do it as eye service, 
or as men-pleasers, but with singleness of heart and fearing the Lord. Work heartily. I think there is implication here that because you're serving God, uh, there is going to be uh, an attempt at excellence at, and at, at uh, uh, propriety and, um, and ethics um, and professionalism in, in a good sense that will pervade your work because of your motivation and you are serving the Lord. Yeah, and that comes out. Uh, Al? good. And coming back to Bob's point, mm-hmm. if, if it is not a benefit, mm-hmm. then it is not good. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we should not think that we're being blessed for what we've done. Mm-hmm. And it comes right back to the fundamentals. Love God and love neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so if we're providing something that's detrimental to our fellow human being, we're certainly not loving our neighbor, and therefore we're not mm-hmm. loving God either. Yeah. We're taking our we're, we're, we're taking control of our own destiny rather than doing it according to God's precepts. Mm-hmm. Bob said in a sermon a bunch of years ago, I never forgot, he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said that if this was going to trend or this was according to the Sermon on the Mount, it all go broke. Mm-hmm. And that was a great challenge to me because I said, that's exactly what I want to try to do. I want to try to do this in accordance with Scripture more importantly, in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. and I'd like to prove that it could be done. Mm-hmm. Of course, what was done was not my proving anything, but God did it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I circled a little booklet uh, written by a man normally as Brother Morris called Practice in the Presence of God. Mm-hmm. Very simple dishwasher. And he wrote about how every act that he did was an act of worship unto mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. It was a presentation to the Lord. Right. Simply the dishwasher. It was very inspirational. I remember that book. Yeah. That's a neat testimony. Uh, the last question I have here is, why do you work? And this, again, it has to do with motivation. But I've often thought uh, that this kind of question uh, really cuts to the heart of it, of the matter, and that is, what if God provided you with a, a fortune whereas you felt, well, I don't need to work for money. Uh, why do I work? What would you do? What would you do? I think that really uh, comes down to uh, help you understand your motive for work and where you feel your work, uh, what, what role your work plays in fulfilling God's purposes. 
uh, how best you can use your talents, as Bob says, to bless uh, others. Would it mean you would quit your job uh, if you ended up with a fortune um, or not? That's an interesting question. I'm not yeah. It it would be. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, retirement comes up too often in the uh, New Testament. But, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the ultimate goal for work in a secular worldview would, would either be for money or for leisure. Uh, or some would find a personal uh, ego trip. Uh, you know, power or, or, or influence behind that. But, uh, but that's not what we're called for. Uh, we have a different motivation uh, in serving Christ. Um, and, and that would be, um, I think, what I'm, I'm trying to call us to, is to recognize that motivation in our regular 8 to 5 jobs. And it also, of course, uh, says something about uh, how we regard, oops, I did do that about uh, what's often referred to as the clergy-lady dichotomy, as I was referring to, that somehow only certain people uh, are serving God, only certain people uh, are called to that ministry, whereas here, um, the slave is serving the Lord. Um, and public-private discipleship is another, uh, another issue, and that is that, uh, that our discipleship is not only seen as something that, that is done privately, but it's done throughout our lives, uh, in the whole of our lives, and that includes our work situation, so that we see every facet of our lives as being discipleship-oriented, as living for Christ, not just Sundays, not just uh, prayer meetings, uh, not just the opportunity when we have to witness to somebody, uh, but in fact everything that we're doing uh, should be focused on Christ, and that includes uh, the workplace. So it's very much a public and, and a holistic view of our discipleship. Yes, Steve? I'm sorry, I haven't uh, given it a thorough reflection. Uh, you can tell that some of my thoughts are tentative in this area. Uh, but, um, but I like what I'm doing so far. <laughs> I like some of these ideas and wanted to share them with you and feel like uh, maybe this could be the start of something more. I'm hoping that, uh, Steve, and maybe that, 
that uh, the elders could could build on this in some way to talk more about our work. I'm, I'm not sure, as I said, that that uh, we've addressed it sufficiently to give uh, ourselves an adequate understanding of God's purposes for us in the workplace. Yeah, Don? Okay, well, let me close here. I've, I've certainly enjoyed uh, this time. I've enjoyed the time of uh, preparation and enjoyed the time of presentation. I've enjoyed getting to see you all again um, and recognize that, uh, that those times are not as often as I wish, but, uh, but I'm thankful for every weekend, every day that I'm able to spend with you in fellowship. I want to continue to ask for your prayers uh, for me and for Beth. Um, I was telling a few people that uh, the plan is, is that when I'm on the road, uh, that Beth will come down to Dallas and uh, spend time here. Her mother is not doing well. Uh, she lives with uh, Beth's sister uh, in a, a large house. Uh, Micah ends up at that house also when he's back in Dallas, and that's where we're staying now. And so the plan is that Beth will be able to help her mom uh, and that does seem to be working out. Uh, she spent a, a month down here during Christmas. She'll be here two weeks uh, here. And she's able to help out and help bear the burden of the care. And so we're, we're grateful that that's working out. So she'll uh, be able to fellowship more uh, than I will, perhaps. But, uh, but I certainly have uh, been privileged to be here, honored to be here, and uh, blessed uh, in the process. So thanks for inviting me. Tommy.